This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My dad always really pushed me to be very career-driven and very education-driven. And then I had kids. And what I noticed was my dad would say certain things to me that implied he expected me to be the primary caretaker of our children. Like I'd be like, hey, dad, do you mind coming over to babysit because my husband is busy and I've got to do this other thing? And my dad would be like, well, do you really need to take that meeting? And I'm like, yeah, dad, just because now I have a child doesn't mean that all of a sudden my career priorities have shifted. And it took a little while for him to finally accept that there would be no stopping Sharon. She wasn't going to stop working as hard or she wouldn't be as focused. And it was interesting to watch his reaction to that because it had never been as direct as it was until after I had a child. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Hey, Roman. Hey, Sharon. Guess what this month is? Uh, March. (laughs) Right? Why is March special? Uh, I feel like this is a leading question. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. March is Women's History Month, and today is International Women's Day. Yeah, absolutely. I totally knew that. I actually did, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, This yeah. episode was half my idea. <laughs> but Sharon, as the only non-woman host of this podcast, this is not a topic I am nearly qualified enough to talk about. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> but isn't that the point of the show? We're all minorities somehow. Fair enough. So does that mean I get to ask a lot of dumb questions? That's pretty much every episode. You ask all, a lot of dumb questions. <laughs> Touche. It's part of my boyish charm. <laughs> But in all seriousness, this month, we wanted to air conversations with some fantastic female guests. Which, to be clear, is half of all of our episodes. But for today, International Women's Day, we wanted to have a broader discussion on the pod with some amazing female business leaders. Yep, and I'm really excited about this one. Rem and I wanted to kick off Women's History Month with a special discussion and seeing how that I'm the only female in our modern minorities duo, I figured I would tap into some of the most accomplished women I know. As a female founder, I'm a member of Chief, a professional networking group for rock star women. Chief's mission is to bring the most powerful women together to change the face of leadership. They also like to host aspiring podcasters over to their office because that's where Sharon and I actually came up with the idea for our show at Chief's New York City office. Yep. I think you had maybe a free glass of Chardonnay while you were there too, perhaps. Hey, I'm all about the Chief. (laughs) And I honestly still don't know how or why they invited me to be a Chief. But when I started thinking about who to feature on this episode, I knew that it would be an embarrassment of riches and we'd be able to get some pretty incredible Chief members on here. So hi, Kranthi. How's it going? Hi, Sharon. It's going great. Thank you for having me here. It's great to have you. Hey, Stacy. How you doing? Hey, Raman. It's great to be here. Hey, Sharon. Hello. Hey, Hello. So Kranthi Mecca is a senior vice president of business development at PayActive, which is saving billions of dollars in financial fees from the poorest workforce. She's a software engineer, veteran of eBay and Visa, and an advocate for STEM education for girls all over the world. Kranthi lives her name, meaning rebel changemaker. And Stacey DeStefano is quite the Renaissance woman herself, with 25-plus years of leadership experience in the health and human services industries. She's currently the COO at Chimes International, one of the largest and oldest nonprofit human service providers in the country. And she was previously the COO at Open Minds and the VP of Innovation at Resources for Human Development, and even the Ocean County Campaign Coordinator for New Jersey in Obama's 2008 campaign. I love that. Kranthi, Stacey, it's so great to have you on Modern Minorities. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. 
Thank you. So, so Kranti, I got to get this out of the way. Where are you from? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Ramen, guess. Where am I from? (laughs) Well, usually when someone asks me that, I'm like, well, I'm from New York or I'm from Alabama. And then the second question is, well, where are you really from? So I can tell by my correct pronunciation of your name, you're from the South Asian subcontinent. Is that fair? Yes, that is right. From a very small town in South India. Where exactly? Near Hyderabad, a town called Nizamabad. And when did you come over? I moved here in my early 20s, pretty much as a runaway bride, I would say. (laughs) As surprising as it sounds like. I was a computer science engineer at that time. Not right now. I moved on to the business side and executive side now, but I can't quote a word now. But at that time, Tall, good-looking, computer science engineer, making good money. And my parents, my mom is taught, she was still there from a very humble, middle-class background. And caste was a barrier because my parents were an inter-caste marriage. Like in India, there is a caste system. So my mom was ashamed of her own marriage. And she thought that it would need a lot of money for me to marry someone, a guy who flew from India, from U.S., and... And thinking that the whole dowry system, the whole part of giving money to the groom, and that's how it was. The whole transaction was happening and the marriage fell apart, which itself was like, whatever the reason, I said, this is not what I'm signing up for. This is not why I went to good schools, work hard. I'm just fleeing this country, going to land of dreams, United States. And I came by myself and I told my mom probably a few days before I was flying to U.S., And she was in shock, but uh, she was happy that I'm going to go to the land of dreams and make my fortunes. What a story. Stacey, how about you? Are you a runaway bride? (laughs) Well, not a runaway bride, but I think a run across the country college student. So that's maybe the the similar vein in our stories. Yeah, I grew up in um, northern New Jersey, uh, a suburb of New York City. And I decided to go to college. Uh, I was the first person to go to college in my family. And I wanted to go somewhere outside of a a small town feel where there was a lot more diversity and and see other parts of the country. So I went to Arizona State from all the way across from New Jersey, knowing no one there and only having ever been there once. So ended up uh, living there 10 years and going to grad school out there as well was an incredible experience. Well, so I guess... The question I have for both of you is, if we can back up before your very accomplished careers, and we want to spend some time there for sure, in your experiences as female leaders, but growing up, what were what were some of those early moments before your career journey where you had to defy stereotypes or expectations? Because I think about, I mean, I, I have a young daughter, she's five, and yeah. I, I hate, every time I say that, I cringe because of AOCs, like, I'm not giving the wives and daughters speech, I promise, but I... <laughs> I'm not quite on eggshells, but I'm more consciously aware of how to raise a daughter in 2020 versus how my sister and I were raised in the early 80s, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. The the norms associated. And I I guess the question is like, when did you first understand that boys and girls are treated differently? Were, Were there any stories from that from your childhood for either of you guys? Yeah. I can say for me, I mean, I grew up in a very traditional middle-class environment where men, probably boys, were were groomed to either go to college through sports and athleticism or for other reasons. But we were socialized to be wives and mothers. Mm -hmm. We, We weren't socialized to be executives. I didn't know any woman who was an executive. I mean, my mom was the PTA president, and I remember watching her on stage when I was in elementary school before recital when they'd have the PTA meetings so that they'd have a bigger crowd. And I'd see her walk up on that stage and talk to the parents in front of 200 people in an auditorium. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. I want to be on a stage like that, or I want to be commanding attention like that and and, and having a role of some authority. And, And to me at four or five sixth grade, that was that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the president of the PTA because that's what I saw my mom do. And that was the most accomplished woman I saw. So it definitely was not part of my upbringing to want to get a master's degree and, and be in a C-suite role. I didn't even know what that was as a kid. So. You would be a very unusual kid if you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, but you, you talk about socializing 
like what does socializing like female jobs mean back then? Is that the classic like, well, boys are doctors and girls are nurses? Like what were the sort of things? Yeah, be a teacher, uh, be a nurse, learn how to cook, be a good wife, be a good Mm. mother. I didn't know of female aspirations greater than president of the PTA and not to disparage that because that's a great thing to do. But Girl Scout leader, president of the PTA, that I wasn't really raised to have some great career aspiration. So that was brand new to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, uh, on the contrary, I have an entirely different experience to share. I don't think I didn't face the stereotype until I was like the marriage part happened and I became a runaway bride. I think until that time, I'm as humble as my family is, I have to give the credit to my mom and dad. They actually raised me with a very open mind. I was the youngest of three kids, my parents had, and I was very driven. Even since beginning, I knew that my way out of my humble setting was education. Education has such an importance in India. So I was so focused on my grades and doing things that would keep me and above everyone. And that's what my focus was. So my parents really felt, I think they gave the freedom that I want to, even it actually before they were they were when it was time for me to marry and I was already working in Bangalore, which is really like a Silicon Valley of India. And they asked me if I like someone that I would like to marry before they start looking. Oh, for- scandalous. A love wow. marriage. Yeah. So they were actually asking for that. And I, I really <laughs> was not like I was so busy build, studying and building my career. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anybody. Shame on me, right? So, And then they find this guy and they think that they have to give the money and I'm like, I'm running away. So my first stereotype experience actually was that whole marriage setting, I must say, with my upbringing. My parents actually, unlike my rest of my cousins and everybody in the family, they were happy and they just settled. And I think I was odd person out in my family. So were they very ambitious even as a kid. Being someone who's Asian and, and who grew up with really the familial belief really that girls and boys were quite different. Were there any expectations of you though, Kranthi? Like, although your parents were obviously very liberal and supportive, did they expect you to do certain things? Yeah. Was your mom saying, well, we still got to teach you how to cook these five dishes because dot, dot, dot. Actually, to her credit, she didn't. And the studio from my parents, like I didn't face that from my parents. But when I went to an engineering college in India, which is very south rural part of India, and there I faced like, oh, the women are supposed to always wear this big, the red dots and are like, I think it's, it's, it was the stereotype of a woman was portrayed more so in that engineering college than any cost was a big thing. And which last name was a big thing, all of those things. And women are supposed to be uh, walking this way, talking this way, or behaving this way. This was imposed by the boys of the engineering college. And that was a shock to me. But I didn't care less. They're not my parents. They're not my brothers. So why do I care? Or our boyfriend. So I didn't care at that time. But I was a rebel. Like, that's my name, right? I give grandparents. <laughs> But yeah, I think, and Stacey, I do want to ask a question about how your parents thought about it, because there's this interesting story, and Sharon, I don't know if I've actually said this on the podcast, but my parents had a, a semi-arranged marriage. Like, they they both wrote to their, their parents wrote saying, oh, okay, our kids are ready to get married. So they met each other, and I'm sure they met a few other people. In fact, I know they did. But my dad is pretty progressive by Indian standards for the 60s and 70s, and I remember he went to my grandfather, my mom's father. And my grandfather told my dad, okay, well, cool. We're going to do this thing. You're going to marry my daughter. What's your expectations on wedding and dowry and all that stuff? And my dad, newly minted master's architect in America, right? He's like, no dowry, because that's dumb. And we'll split (laughs) the cost of the wedding 50-50. Now, you know, okay, so my dad's told me that story multiple times. Like, oh, wow, dad, you're so woke. Cool. And I asked my grandfather before he passed away about that moment. And he was like, yeah. When your dad told me that, we were like, he's hiding something. What is wrong with this man? Wow. Because this is not the expectation. If the expectation in society is dowry and we pay for the mm-hmm. wedding, we're yeah, because yeah. of how money is going to flow between the families, right? Over. So I, I guess the question is, and this is almost like my dumb question to Americans, <laughs> like Stacy, like what were your parents' expectations around that stuff, or yeah. even how? 
How did your parents interact with each other about that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, my parents had traditional marriage and my mom made dinner and baked a cake every night and was a Donna Reed type for all of you young enough to remember Donna Reed. So I, I grew up, you know, watching. I had such a crush on Donna Reed watching <laughs> oh, as a kid. You would have loved my mom. Oh she, my gosh. She was, uh, she was a, a beautiful, efficient housewife. But no, I think she was proud of me and, and, and my dad was very supportive and they were proud of me. And they, even my grandmother, who was very Italian, would brag about my California girl going to college, my granddaughter. So they were very proud and supportive. But I think in some ways, um, and certainly in my early career, which is funny to even call a career in your 20s when you just you graduate and you get your first job. And I worked at the Suicide Prevention Center in Phoenix. And I thought in, I have a clinical background in, in mental health. So that was one of my first jobs. And when I, when I flipped from clinician into some of the, the management type roles, I thought that they thought that was nice and they were supportive, but I don't think they really thought anything of it long term. It was, well, that's a great job. Not that they said this, but there was an understanding that it's great to have a job and a career and then you'll get married and have kids. Mm, so yeah. that was never said outright. Yeah. But I think that was always the expectation. It was like, well, that's nice that you're off and doing this, but eventually you'll move back to East and have kids and maybe be the PTA president. Yeah. So, And at that suicide prevention center, it was run by a woman and, and she was an older woman, or at least to me in the early 90s, she seemed like an older woman. She was probably my age now, which is depressing, but she she was a badass and, and she was, people feared her. She ruled very, in a male dominated world, she was the only CEO, executive director that was female. And I remember just watching her and just taking it all in. And, and that was my first real eye-opening you can be a woman in charge moment. So mm -hmm. I, I think I just took a lot from that experience. It's so interesting. Sharon, what about you though? Like, what did your parents, like, did your parents have, have expectations yeah. about find a boy, learn how to cook, stuff like that? Not overtly, but things came out as my life developed. So my mom and my dad had a pretty traditional marriage as well, where my dad worked out of the house. My mom was a housewife up until my little brother entered kindergarten. So for most of my childhood, I knew her as a stay-at-home mom. And same thing, she'd have dinner on the table at six o'clock. She didn't bake a cake every night, Stacy, <laughs> but, but she really was. And she was also PTA president. I mean, all of those things you're saying in New Jersey, I'm like, yeah, same thing. My Chinese mom back in, in New York City. And but at the same time, so I'm the oldest, I'm the oldest of three kids. Mm. My dad always really pushed me to do really well in school, to be really successful, always wanted, he would watch The Apprentice all the time and be like, you should be on that show, you know? So like always pushed me to be definitely very career driven and very education driven. And then I had kids. And what I noticed was and so in my mind, like I always knew I was going to be a working mom. I never had any, I, I really, I maybe for a second thought I might off ramp for a little while, but very quickly during maternity leave, learned that like, I, I just don't do well if I'm not busy and that just only being a mom wasn't enough. So anyway, so I, I had already made a lot of my decisions in that way, but I noticed that when I had babies of my own, my dad would say certain things to me that implied that he expected me to be the primary caretaker of our children. Like and what? just stuff like, like I, I would, I don't know, I, I need to take a meeting or something. And I'd be like, Hey dad, do you mind coming over to babysit? Because my husband is busy and I've got to do this other thing. And my dad would be like, well, do you really need to take that meeting? And I'm like, Dad, like, yeah, dad, like just because now I have a child doesn't mean that all of a sudden my career priorities have shifted. And it took a little while for him to finally accept that there would be no stopping Sharon, even after like Sharon as mom, yeah. she like, she wasn't going to stop working as hard or she wouldn't be as focused. And it was interesting to watch his reaction to that because it had never been it, it just, it had never been as direct as it was until after I had had a child. What's um, so interesting about that, Sharon, and I'm the oldest of three also, so mm -hmm. it's a fun parallel, but, but my dad's reaction actually shifted the opposite way after I had kids. I think he saw that I could be the career person 
and, and take that as far as it could go. And he would come and stay with my kids while I went to a conference or while I went on a business development trip. And he became so super supportive. He passed away a couple of years ago, but in the last 15 years of my career, he was my biggest cheerleader and my mentor and my professional confidant to help me get through things. And, and he really went the other way. So it's That's interesting. Amazing. Yeah, it's interesting how that could really can well, go either it, way. It, it is in any form of like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sharon, our friend Carl works in male allyship, right, at P&G. And we need men to be more feminist, right? Like I, I think mm -hmm. about my own dad, like my dad was like to my mom, you should get your master's. I'm going to, there was like a five-year period in my life where my sister and I, my dad helped us with homework and cooked our dinners, right? Because mom was at night school getting her master's. And it's almost this play of like, we have a lot of catching up to do, to be very clear, but it's like men have to step up into this expectation. And so yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask both of you guys, Deanne, Stacey, uh, was there ever a moment where like you came to clash with the stereotypes and expectations in your career journey? Like Stacey, I know there's like a really interesting story about a local town councilman. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really pivotal point for me. I had my kids. So I had four kids, uh, the first are twins. And so when I had my last, I had four ages, six and under. So I had made the decision at the time to stay at home for a few years. Um, I was doing a private practice in counseling at the time. So I did a very part-time while my kids were, were young. And so there were six years I stayed home and uh, my husband at the time worked and was, was one income family and things were tight. And so I relied on a lot of the recreational activities for the kids. So this was an incident that happened over ice skating. So I had given them ice skating, you know, lessons at the rec and it was $25 a kid, which was affordable for, for the two older kids. And the one year, the council president, I suppose, uh, at the time, and I, I didn't know anything about politics. I have to preface by saying I was independent, wasn't designated to a party, never involved in anything like that. So he had doubled the fees, which then cost twice as much and I couldn't afford to send my kids. So I had written a letter to the editor uh, of the local newspaper criticizing his decision and saying why that should have been something gradually increased and that it was a real hit to families. And it was a pretty pointed letter. I'm a pretty good writer. And so a couple of days after that was published, this was before the internet, 2005, uh, I got a phone call while I was making dinner one night and about six o'clock and it was him. It was the man who I had written a letter to in the council. And he said, I want to talk to you about your letter to the editor. And I said, oh, okay, great. And I'm thinking he's going to want to talk about all the reasons that I, I challenged him. And he said, yeah, my main question is who wrote it for you? And I said, well, what do you mean? What? He, he said, well, well who, wow. wrote, who wrote the letter? I said, I don't understand. And he said, well, it says you're a stay-at-home mom. So obviously someone wrote the letter for you. It was a well-written letter. Well, I'm sorry. I have to ask, what year is this? <laughs> yeah. 2005. Oh my, oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was just floored and I, I couldn't believe this conversation. And so really he, he thought some political operative had put me up to it or signed my name to it. And the whole premise of the conversation was because it was an articulate argument and a well-written letter that a stay-at-home mom could not possibly have penned it. So as a result, I started attending council meetings and I started challenging him on other issues. And it turned out that he happened to be a Republican candidate for, for mayor. And the incumbent mayor came and found me after a council meeting and we chatted and I talked about the issues and I ended up getting involved in his campaign and rallying a, a bunch of moms stay-at-home moms like myself. And he ended up winning that election by about, I think it was 197 votes. And there were about 200 women in the group I rallied. So in effect, my efforts helped him win. And so as a result of that, the newspaper, it was the Asbury Park Press in New Jersey, they wrote an article, it put a big picture of me and my kids on the front about how we won the election, but how I was not a, a Democrat and I wasn't committed to the party. And how even though they won, they didn't you know, have the voice of us in the party. Party. And long story short, someone from the Obama campaign, who was draft Obama at that time, he wasn't even a, ca a candidate, reached out to me and asked me if I knew anything about him, which I did. I had certainly seen his speech at the, the DNC and whatnot, and, and asked if I could talk about the issues he supports and could I support him as a candidate. And I ended up uh, working on the campaign to draft him into candidacy. And then with NJ for Obama, I became the Ocean County campaign coordinator. And 
the rest is history. He, he actually won, I met him several times, went to the inauguration or ball, all of those things. So all of that to say, don't piss off a housewife, I guess, is the, <laughs> the bottom line there. Don't underestimate us. But but that really, I think, launched me into a leadership mindset and, and it, it's carried through. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, story there, Stace. Don't piss off a housewife. <laughs> Well, my, my, actually, I have a positive ending and an opportunity or, or something that I could use as a development opportunity or, or not stand for that. I think I'll, I have two experiences to share on your question, Raman. Professionally, when I was still an engineer, I think it's ripe stage of my engineering. I was the person where the sales team and the accounts team wanted to take me on the client conversations and have me explain the technology behind and all. So... Is this in India or winter over in here in California? I would say around 2010. And at that time, a colleague she absolutely loved me taking her on the calls. But the thing I was also not just a dorky engineer. She literally called me that. That engineers are supposed (laughs) to be dorky. You're very presentable. We love taking you to the client. So it was actually a positive thing in a way because she stereotyped, but also her positive way of saying it pulled me out of it. Actually, I really love doing this. I really love talking to clients and making things simple, not really speaking in technical jargons, but speak like the client. And people love having me there. I actually think that was a positive experience. On the contrary, years ago, where I am actually aiming for something higher than where I am. And they call me a workhorse. And I should be just focusing on keeping my heads down and doing what I'm supposed to do and not think about the strategic leadership things and I should be aiming for or just just do what you do as a workhorse. And I was hurt so much by that because I was delivering so much for this team and doing everybody had a lot of great things to say in the leadership. But the person who is supposed to be my sponsor said I'm a workhorse and in a very bad way and it literally put me in tears. But it made me think, Like, I'm not going to say that someone who just talks the talk doesn't walk the talk, say who I am. I'm going to fight this. And that made me think my position. Why should I not be the brown girl in sales world? Why should I not be the one that is driving the business executive decisions? It made me do more things and people notice me and I am where I am now. But it was a very emotional thing for a few days. But I just like said, no, I'm not letting anyone put me down. I'm just going to take this as a challenge and prove what I can do. So this is for either of you. Did you ever feel like you had to hide something or hide a part of yourself to be successful? Hmm, Good question. Very interesting question, actually. I think if as I, I actually maybe, I I used to have a (laughs) nose piercing Really? Moved to US because it was very traditional. To be clear, that's an Indian thing. That's not. Yes. She's not like a trendy hipster yes. from Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly. It's not trendy hipster from New York. I was thinking you were like a punk rock queen or something. No. You're absolutely right. It was a traditional Indian thing. I had a nose piercing on the right nostril, which is not right in US. Mm-hmm. I was told for whatever reasons. I mean, at that time, so I wouldn't say like not judging anything, but. I had the nose piercing and I took it out because people told it's not professional and I just went with it. And now the piercing is gone because I can't really, I'm like regretting that decision now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I I hid my nose piercing. Now a nose nose piercing in the Silicon Valley. I mean, you'd probably get at least 5 million in VC funding for that. (laughs) That would increase your valuation. It's mandatory. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. How about you, Stacy? Have you ever experienced either shame or judgment from other people for the choices that you've made? Oh, gosh. That's a big one for me. There were a lot of internal family dynamics for me around choices to be dedicated to my career and, and some folks thinking that being a mom and being a successful executive are mutually exclusive. 
So uh, lots of conversations and some falling out around that where it was viewed that you can't do both. And at any time when I was raising kids, as all kids do, especially teenagers, there's things that you go through and things that they go through. So a lot of inherent dynamics there that you have to be the traditional mom or you can be a traditional career person, but you can't possibly be both or you can't be both successfully. You can't do them well if you're doing them both. Yeah. 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 So surprisingly for me, I think I am the one of the very, it's still a taboo in India, in Indian community, which is I'm a single mom. So when I got divorced, fortunately, my family was, has been even now today are very supportive of it. Not that they encouraged me to get divorced, but they saw what I went through and they stood up for me. My mom literally sacrificed her life and been living with me for the past 15 years. My daughter is 15 year old now supporting because knowing that how ambitious I am. So my mom has been nothing but supportive of that uh, or my entire family, I would say. But the people who put me to shame at times is my accent, which is my own Indian fraternity. Sometimes some of the girlfriends or like how I would say things or how I pronounce things. Mm-hmm. people and I was actually it's not the it's not the Americans it's it's the Indians who would like oh that's not the way to say it or like and laugh at it and I actually was ashamed at that time but now I'm like this is the way to say it take it yeah. I, I just take, wear it with pride because this is the authenticity and find it cute or yeah. not but I think it's surprising right from your own community you've feel that shame you the way you speak or dressing was never an issue, but that was definitely a thing, how my accent was. Yeah. Versus embracing like who you are. I felt like back in the day at Temple, my mom was always the only auntie who'd never wore a sari. And I know in the early days, it was sideways glances, right? Who do you think you are? And I think my mom, probably similar to you, Kranti, you just lean into it. This is who I am. This is how I roll get used to it. It's <laughs> just like sheer force of personality, I would almost imagine. But are there things that you have, and I have to ask this as the dude, right? Trying trying to learn more. Are there things that both of you have had to change about your personality, how you talk, how you dress, etc., to fit in, to not be ostracized as much as a woman? In a positive way, I would say. I actually feel grateful to be in this country to blend in and to adapt the things. So though I was from a small town, my, like I said, my parents raised me with an open mind. So it was never an issue how I dress. So it transitioned here. But I think what I would say is the voice, listening skills, actually allowing others to speak, some of these soft skills, it's been a great experience being like in India, it's doggy, doggy wall. Like, I mean, people are like very aggressive, fighting for their position in the sense, not in a good way, because there's so many people and so much competition and everybody career wise or education wise, people are competing with each other and always trying to stand out in here, actually giving others opportunity, the kindness, the generosity and I absolutely, I think I've embraced good things for a positive change, I would say. Yeah, I think for me, throughout the journey, being mindful of the traits that are stereotypically female and how they're perceived. So Mm -hmm. I have many, many times in my career, not so much in this role I have now with Chimes uh, as COO, but in in other roles and in other venues, I've often been the only woman in a meeting. And or the only other woman was the secretary taking minutes. So I've had to be mindful of how I'm saying and what I'm saying. And also there's an East Coast, Midwest, East Coast, West Coast difference in communication style and speech, right? So I'm born and raised in New Jersey, an Italian family. I can talk really quickly when I get excited about something. Mm -hmm. And I've had to be really mindful of slowing that down and be intentional about how I communicate at times over the years so that you're not deemed as the hysterical woman or too emotional or any of those things. So I think now it's not an issue, but early on it, for me, it definitely was. Yeah. And just to dig into that more, right? The, hyster- the, the hysterical woman or the emotional woman, have there been moments when you're working with men, when you've had to change your behavior in some way? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think yes, definitely the answer is yes. I could probably think of dozens of times where that was the case. And I don't know that it's changed to a level where it's inauthentic, but it's more of a mindfulness, right? It's, it's trying to uh, stay under the radar a bit for the right reasons and then mm-hmm. be more on the marquee for the right reasons, right? I want to be, you know, known as prepared and smart and, and deliberate and fair and, and impressive. And when I'm trying to pitch something in business development, yeah. but also keep leading on that empathy and the thoughtfulness and reading the room, which I think women do far better than men. And yeah. No offense, Roman, but I, I do. <laughs> I think I think we're just more skilled at that as a gender. I guess that's a, a generalization, but I, I find it true. Yeah. I think for me, it's it's been, I think, because gratitude is my biggest strength. So, but but making sure that I seize the opportunity to speak. And I feel, I think a lot of times men, because of age or I don't know the position, they automatically roll into an advisor or a counsel role. Mm-hmm. Because this is my counsel mm-hmm. to you. This is my advice to you. Well, you could be senior to me or you could be a peer to me. But value that I bring certain values and certain skills and expertise to the table as well. So Mm -hmm. speak to me like a peer or not just think that you have to give me an advice and counsel all the time. Right. That's a great point. So I I feel that a lot of uh, times that's one thing that men tend to do it when they have a woman peer, even Mm, if they could be above you or below you, but I think they're always in a high, in an upper hand to give you an advice. Why? As the minority male on this podcast, I have to ask (laughs) all three of you this question. What are some moments, and this is not about the moment itself, but it's more of like, unconsciously, we all do things that are wrong. And I guess the question is, what are those things that men do? Consciously or un- but I'm more I'm more concerned about unconsciously because I need to be consciously aware of the thing I unconsciously do. What are the things that men do in the professional space in the 2000s? We like to think we're so far ahead, but are we? Like, what what are the things that men are doing today that you want them to do less of? I think it's generational in my experience, right? So I think men that are, I'm going to say 50 and older, and certainly 60 and older, there always seems to be a condescending edge, whether they, they intend to have it or not, in my experience. Not always, but they're often, even if it's someone brought this up recently, I was in a, a group of C-suite folks in a, in a large meeting. And uh, there was four of us speaking together before the meeting. And, you know, they, we were approached by a, a man, a superior, and ladies, how are you today? You know, and it's it's said as a condescending, like little women way, where he wouldn't walk hmm. up and I don't know and say gentlemen or it just it just seemed odd. And, and someone, one of the women, pointed it out, and I noticed that there there seems to be like a caretaking lens that you're spoken to with its with its sixty and above, in my experience, and with younger, I, I don't think it's much of an issue. I think we're doing a good job as a society in raising men to see women as more equal and, and to to be more partnered. I absolutely agree with Stacey on that. I think younger generation, Raman, including you, that makes you feel happy. No, I don't. No, <laughs> no come on. Okay, so you guys are copping out. Like, because I, th- I don't think my generation is excluded. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's actually maybe seniority. Like, yes, it's age and maybe generation. But what I've, I've noticed in my own experience is as someone who's – the most senior person in my professional dealings, what I notice is if I'm talking to somebody who's junior than me, which many times means younger, that guy, that male will defer to me because, because I'm we're the used boss. To that. We've seen that. We've had female right. bosses. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I'm the yeah. boss, I'm the leader. I get the last word, right? Yeah. yeah. If I'm talking to someone who's a peer or who's more senior to me, which is, I mean, in my, in my role doesn't happen all that often, but if it's like a bigger company or a client of mine, they always try to have the last word. Hmm. And I've actually, I've, I've experimented with a little bit, like, what if, like, what if I just push it, right? So instead of just letting things lie, <laughs> what if I try to have the last word? Like and, an SNL skit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it will, it'll keep going. Sharon, are you using this podcast as a big experiment? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, how many that. times can I get Ruman to say something last, right? I and love it's- that. <laughs> yeah. 
But I think unconsciously what I feel that men could be doing that need to think a bit more is definitely boat positions, right? A lot of the boats are still, you know, male dominated. Giving the way to women, I think, be the he for she. I think you have to consciously do it. I think you don't have to be the person because you found an idea or you're an inventor. You are not the only one who is speaking. Give women opportunities to share their thoughts or mm-hmm. be out there. Shine the light on them. Give them the opportunities. I mean, it may not be the perfect, but I think unless you give the way to women and make the way for women, that because you're not vacating the space, then how am I going to take that space? I'm not going to push you because uh, that's not right. women's nature, right? So I think unconsciously men do not realize it, that they have to step aside and make room for their other genders. So that's interesting, though, when you think about personality types, right? Because I was raised by um, very dominant women. My grandmother uh, lived with us for a long time. She was very dominant, very dominant. I have my oldest daughter, very happy to say, uh, is the same, although there are points when we're so similar, I'm not happy to say it, but I'm happy in the long run that she's a strong woman. Uh, she She's uh, almost 24. And I think that we just don't tolerate a lot of nonsense in our family as women. And, and that colors my professional career as well, where I've seen other women maybe raised in a different manner who, who put up with more. So is it really female male or is it personality? I think probably a mix of all those things, right? But I love, Cranthy, I love your thought about calling on other women. And I think that's our responsibility too as successful women, right, is to help elevate those voices in a meeting or in a room or anywhere, right? And I try to always do that is point out the person who maybe hasn't said anything. Mm-hmm. And when there's a lot of chatter, say, oh, Sharon, what do you, what do you think about that? Or I haven't yeah. heard from you. I, yeah. I think that's our responsibility as women. I agree. Exactly. Unless you include them into the conversations, how would they be part of the conversation? Or I mean, sometimes, yes, you make your own room, but you're not even aware and you're not even part of this whole thing, what's going on, then how could you be? So I think making room is so important for all the people, men, women at the leadership level to give opportunities to others. Yeah, and that gives us cover, right? I mean, that helps us as well. We're we're creating our own allies in the room. Yep. What advice would you give to your younger self? So much. (laughs) I could have told myself I should have negotiated myself better. So that's, I, I think that's one thing. I was ambitious. I did all the right things. Like I went at things like, but like I took life by horns, but I don't think I've negotiated my career very well for myself. I've just like realized like this Tiara syndrome, put your heads down, keep working, be sincere, work hard. And someone will recognize you and put a tiara and make you the queen or princess or head of something that doesn't happen. You have to, I mean, you do all of that, but you have to work smart and be the tall poppy. Yeah. I think I I took too much personal early in my career, right? If if an idea wasn't moved forward by by a supervisor or if I said something that folks didn't agree with, I, I took, I spent too much time feeling badly about that afterwards, you know, and I heard someone say recently, it was great advice, when, let, when the day is done, let the day be done, and then start a new one tomorrow. And I think I spent far too much time being hard on myself and taking things personally. And business is business, and tomorrow's another idea and another mm-hmm. you know, chance to do it again. And, and so I think I would do that piece much differently. I think that was a confidence hit for a long time early in my career. What do you think the future should look like for young women? Whatever they want. whatever they want exactly their choices of living and work and that's exactly what I want for my daughter and I don't want to stereotype her to this way or that way just I think one thing I would say is be good do good which is don't take other person whether it's personal or professional relationship for granted I think Mm. you always need to be that person to acknowledge other person's presence and uh, if there is anything, help him, but uh, don't do anything to demeanor or lower the other person's light or brightness. That's yeah. what I would yeah. tell to a young generation. Yeah. I, I would love to see a time where we don't have to have this conversation. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't want to have a woman's day. 
yeah. we don't have a men's day. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to have to call. Oh, come on, out. that's every day. Let's be clear. <laughs> Let's oh be my clear. goodness! Stop no, it. I, that, that was a commentary on <laughs> society because I remember. I, I'd actually I interviewed a, a very prominent CFO from the Bay Area on another podcast, and something that made her decide to quit a company she was at, where she was the CFO, was when an executive said. Yeah, I see all these female affinity groups, Asian affinity groups, black people affinity groups. Where's the white guy affinity group? And and this CFO said right back to him, that's every day. That right. You have the club. Yeah. And it is like, but I agree with that, Stacey. Like, but yeah. at the same time, I'm sorry. Like it, it's almost like we have a long way to go, even though some of the stories you guys were saying, and I was like, what year was that? 2005? I'm sorry, Obama was president. We are not in a post-racist society. No, we, don't get, no. we don't get a pass. No, um, and there's not enough women in leadership. There's not enough women on paid boards. Yeah. Uh, and that's just, there's not enough women in, in government. That's, mm-hmm. that's just a fact. I mean, I work in nonprofit and there's not enough women here either, but there's more than, than in the for-profit space. And, and it's um, not just an unconscious biasing. It's a systems thing. Right, just the way our systems and our efforts are designed, consciously or unconsciously, do have a favoritism to my people, <laughs> so to speak. It's true, it's true. Yeah. yeah, and one more thing I will add to that is my mom always told me growing up, which is like no one can steal the education, your skills, and then yeah. your culture in the sense how how you would treat others. And I think these are two things like your integrity and your skills are so important. It's not about the gender. It's not about the race. It's not about the color. It's none of those. You're here to do something great and have the skills and the integrity to treat others just the way you would treat yourself. And then the skills that will take you up, whatever you dream for, and you could make it happen. Right. I think it's very important. Nobody can take that away from you. That's so, you're so right about that. And I'm personally so honored that we have folks like yourself here with us today because you're such a great role model for all those young women and and myself. I mean, even just talking about us being in leadership roles, I I personally feel a lot of responsibility in reaching back, paving the way, creating opportunities. And it would be nice to one day not have to have an International Women's Day like we do today. So with that said, I think we've, we've covered so much and we so appreciate all of your stories. At the end, we do something called Speed Round. And we'd love to do the same with you guys. Are you ready for Speed Round? Yeah. Yes. Perfect. What is a book, movie, or television show with characters that you can relate to? I would relate to the book Power of Intention mm-hmm. because it's what you intend is so important because the intention creates the energy around you. So that's what I relate. And I'm insanely positive person, always thinking how the right intentions and the actions will follow. And how about you, Stacey? Gosh, I love the complexity of the characters and little fires everywhere. I think oh. that's, that's an interesting yeah. cross-section and psychological story. Mm-hmm. And, and the relationships between... All of the, yeah, all of the characters. And the young women, the the angst of them. So I I like that. Totally. All right. I feel really weird asking this question on this episode, but it is (laughs) our favorite question to ask all guests. So I'm going to blame the podcast and the timing that I got. It's a good question. It's a good question. (laughs) What are both of your favorite mom dishes? And it's, I guess you're both moms, but your mom's dish. What's your favorite Uh, mom dish? My mom's... uh... Fish curry. Gosh, I would just eat that every single day. (laughs) The way she makes with tamarind sauce and uh, the fish with the bone. I love it. Yeah, for me, it's vodka sauce. Mm. Like a vodka vodka blush sauce. I would eat that every day too. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's very, that's like being hugged (laughs) to me. (laughs) A nice warm pasta with the vodka. My husband loves that. It's just, it's a comfort food. Reminds me of my mom. Oh, What does being a modern minority mean to you? I think being a modern minority is not, don't forget your roots, but be open to the change. Always be proud of where we come from and remember that, but always give room to grow and change and room for others. That's that's how I look at it. Because if I have to just elaborate on that, India was a minority, like it was a developing country 20 years ago. And so much migration happened, doctors, engineers, cream, and STEM was such an integral part of our upbringing. And I come here, like I, 
I look at a lot of the BIPOC community can use it. That's why I feel like skills are so important. What I mean to say is <laughs> making sure that you are minority at some point, but you're not the minority in future point. So just keep at it and don't let it let you down. That's what I would say for every modern minority person to think about it because you are paving the way. Yeah, I think I would tie to that because to me, it's really about honoring the responsibility to reach out and mentor others. I mean, that's something I take very seriously and do very intentionally with a group of young women, but I'm always looking for ways that I can help others make different mistakes, right? But not the same mistakes I made. So I think for me, it's about it's sharing your story and, and helping elevate others around you. So to Kranthi's point, at some point, we're not a minority anymore. That's great. Well, thank you, Kranti, and thank you, Stacy, for being here today. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks for having us. I'm so glad that we were brought together. Thank you, Sharon, Raman. Wonderful being here, and Stacy. It's been so great sharing this space with you. You too. International Women's Day. Love it. Happy International Women's Day. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. I remember pulling up to this brown home that sat on this hill thinking, oh yeah, that home's big. And in reality, it wasn't a huge, and I walk into it, and all of a sudden, there are all these kids that are all sorts of colors, shapes, sizes. And so there's two white parents who come to greet me with open arms, and a myriad of very different looking kids. all around me, black, Asian, and white. And it was pretty chaotic. All of a sudden, I had 12 other brothers and sisters. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.